and good evening. This is Ian Bezik, the host of Bezik on Stocks. Thank you for joining me tonight. And sorry for the scheduling mix-up. Was intending to host the room last night, but uh, I've had an absolutely crazy week, and it just uh, wasn't able to get everything ready in time. Uh, and yeah, trying to keep up with the the market. I was showing a reader around uh, Cartagena and the islands here last week, and uh, it was a crazy time for the market to to go nuts. And then my daughter started school this week, and just been a little while, but here now, and uh, another crazy day in the market today. Uh, we'll get to the main topic of the show in a little bit, but uh, first let's cover some of these tech earnings I'm sure you've probably seen, but just in case you didn't, uh, Facebook or Meta Platforms, as I guess it's known now, uh, had its largest drop on earnings since since its IPO, so over the past 10 years this evening, down around 22%, uh, which, uh, I mean, I'm not surprised that the stock might have gone down on earnings, but obviously to have one of the largest five companies in the world lose more than a fifth of its value in half an hour was quite the surprise. Uh, the, the numbers for this quarter actually weren't that bad, I mean, looking at them. Uh, revenues actually beat expectations. Earnings were just a little bit light. Uh, but obviously, their guidance for next year was was very bad. Uh, just guiding to as low as three percent top line growth for next year, which uh, obviously these companies have been viewed as as kind of unstoppable juggernauts uh, for a long time. All these fang names and three uh, percent revenue growth isn't really going to get it done. So I, I understand why the the market's upset. Although, yeah, I think twenty two percent might be a little bit of an overreaction. Uh, it does get back to the broader point. As you probably know, I own very little of the FANG. In fact, Facebook's the only one that I've owned recently. And uh, obviously, that appears to have been a mistake in terms of which one. Or maybe I should have avoided all of them uh, coming out of out of the 2021 kind of uh, top for tech stocks. Uh, but yeah, the question that's always been in the back of my mind was uh, what happens if we start treating the FANG stocks as tech utilities? Uh, because so many... Uh, I think people have looked at these and said kind of like they deserve higher multiples indefinitely, but I'm not sure that's really true. Just to give you five examples, oh, let me let me start off with a quiz. Uh, guess uh, you may or may not know, but HP, the company that makes printers and other uh, tech accessories, uh, is in fact still publicly traded. Uh, guess at its PE multiple, and then guess what its earnings or revenues are expected to do this year. I'll give you a second. All right, so HP is trading at nine times 2022 earnings, and analysts see it growing earnings 10% this year and growing revenues 4% this year. Is uh, is HP nearly as good of a business as the FANG stocks? No, not really, but it is a stable tech company that is growing at least a little bit on the top line and quite significantly on the bottom line. It has like $75 billion in annual revenue, so massive company. You can say that. It's uh, not in fashion anymore. It hasn't been for a long time, but there's still a large group of customers that buy as much or a little bit more from them every year as the past year. So the market's decided that nine times earnings is the right price for that business. Uh, look at an Intel, look at an Oracle, look at a Cisco. I can go down the list. All these tech companies are trading at 15 times uh, earnings or less, and they're all stable or growing a little bit. And so why in five years don't we look at a Facebook or an Amazon and say they should be trading at nearly a similar multiple. And if Facebook's going to start growing the top line at 5% a year, I think you ultimately end up back in uh, tech as a utility status sort of trade. Uh, 
yeah, I think that's really a problem for something like Amazon that's at 60 times earnings and what, 50 times cash flow. Uh, but even something like Facebook, I mean, it looked cheap and I, I was long a little bit going into earnings. So obviously I'm uh, not real happy tonight in terms of that, but uh, it was what, 21 times earnings before today. And now I'll be like 17 or 18 after dropping so far. And so, yeah, who's to say it can't turn into another Oracle or Cisco or Intel or something where it throws off tons and tons of cash flow and pays a nice dividend or buys back a ton of stock. Uh, Facebook bought back $20 billion of stock last quarter, which is, even for a company of its size, that's a tremendous amount. And yet the market's not giving it any credit for that because it still wanted actual stronger revenue growth. It doesn't care about just buybacks. Uh, and if the if Facebook's main driver going forward is just that it has a strong buyback, I think you'll have a lower PE multiple to match that because that's not that's not something growth investors care about. They want to see see new products, new markets, and maybe the metaverse gets there in five or ten years. But who knows? Maybe it doesn't. It's still too early to really bake that into our valuations. Uh, let's see, Spotify, which I own as well. Another, uh, it's not a. Quite a, quite a day for tech investors, uh, and I'm not even really a tech investor, but I managed to get caught in this as well. Uh, Spotify's numbers were quite good. Uh, yeah, I think in particular profit margins were up, which I hadn't really been expecting. Yeah, the financials were actually quite strong. However, they guided to weak user growth in 2022, so obviously the stock dropped as much as 20%. I think it closed down like 10%. It bounced quite a bit, but it's still down. Um, yeah, and so I don't know what to think about user growth in terms of uh, they were comping against a good 2021. Like, if people were going to sign up for a streaming service, they would have done it during the pandemic when they were stuck at home or on their phones. Like, what's the incentive to rush into streaming in 2022? As the world economy is reopening, we're spending more time outdoors and less time on our phones. So this seems like a totally logical reaction that the uh, user growth is down. We've seen some of things like Netflix. Uh, some of the e-commerce names, people are just doing less shopping there because they've started going back to the mall or the shopping center or whatever. And so, yeah, I think people just may have had too high of expectations for all these stocks in general. Like you got a massive one-time boost from the pandemic. Everything had to be done online. And now that the, the economy is reopening, some portion of the population is going back to its old habits. And so we're seeing slower growth. But I don't think something like Spotify should be down. Certainly not 20% as it was at one point because uh, the... The core business is continuing to grow. The operating loss is shrinking. Financials are looking better. I understand there's a controversy around Joe Rogan and controversial uh, uh, kind of bad content on the platform or what some people perceive as bad content. Uh, as a shareholder and, and as a user of the app, I would rather that they take a, a broad tent approach and host uh, as much as they reasonably can, anything that's not uh, like threatening violence or, you know, anything that would be First Amendment protected speech. I think Spotify should do its best to try to host. Uh, yeah, we're seeing some artists and folks leave the platform. Uh, but so far, it doesn't seem to be major defections. I mean, we're not talking about like Taylor Swift or the Beatles or big time artists that have held out from Spotify in the past. We're talking much smaller fan bases of artists that are that are leaving now, so I'm not too concerned about that. I think you want to have a platform where everyone feels welcome. If you set up a platform where only the left wing or right wing or only Democrats or whoever feels comfortable on the platform, then you're just telling half of the country, hey, don't use our service. And I think you'd much rather just have these little isolated controversies that blow over in a week rather than having a reputation of 
of not being welcoming to half the country. So I think Spotify is doing the right thing on that regard in terms of hosting controversial content, particularly for podcasts. I mean, what good is a podcast platform if you can't uh, if you can't talk about controversial things? So yeah, I'm not too worried about Spotify. If it drops more, I'll look at buying some more. Uh, see PayPal. I know some readers were asking about. I don't have a, too detailed an opinion about PayPal. Uh, it's kind of in a weird hybrid in that it's, in many regards, it's a legacy pl- uh, payments platform now. I think the original PayPal service online has been around for like 25 years now. And in many regards, it's not as good as many of the fintech offerings that have come after it. I know they're trying to do newer stuff, uh, wallet, uh, crypto, various stuff, but I'm not sure... Uh, it seems like they've fallen behind in terms of maybe Venmo isn't keeping up. Uh, yeah, I just don't get the case for owning this instead of like Visa and MasterCard when they were on sale in November or some of the really cheap legacy payments plays like the global payments that I was talking about last year. Something like PaySafe that I've talked about on the podcast here before. That was down 5% due to PayPal's earnings yesterday and then it dropped another 5% tonight due to Facebook's earnings. So that's down. Eleven percent now in two days on nothing related to the company. So, so I, I think with these payments names, you can just go and look for the businesses you like best. And blue chips, I'd say, Visa and Mastercard are reasonable enough that those are fine. And uh, if you want like a deep value play, something like Global Payments. Uh, so yeah, that would be going through the big tech earnings, or at least the ones that have been on my radar and I've been seeing questions about. Um, yeah, as I think I've said other times, we're, I believe we're in a tech bear market now, meaning that there will be big rallies like we saw this week, but the, the goal now is to sell the rips uh, rather than buying the dips. I mean, you can still buy the dips, but uh, typically in a bear market, you'll get these big 10, 20, uh, 10 or 20% rallies and people think everything's safe and then just out of the blue, the hammer drops again. Like It seemed like the coast was clear and then oh, Facebook comes in today and uh, guides to these much weaker results and now all the social media stocks are way down the e-commerce names are way down so it's like who's going to be rushing to buy this stuff if Amazon misses tomorrow I mean look out it's going to be bad for, for the tech names again and so I think people need to prepare for a different trading environment uh, whereas before from basically from 2009 on whenever a stock dropped Whenever a growth company anyway dropped, you could just buy it and it would be higher in three or six months. But I think now we've got to be a lot more strategic in terms of what we buy and our holding periods and all that. So uh, stay safe out there. Valuations definitely matter again. Uh, even something like Facebook. Like I figured like in terms of from as somebody that owned it prior to today, I figured it might drop to like 15 times earnings over time. I mean, I knew it was heading toward tech utility status, but I didn't think we would get like the re-rating basically in one day. I thought it would just be maybe it underperforms for a while if, if tech stocks drop. But and if, if Facebook can drop 22% a day, anything can drop 22% a day. That includes uh, Microsoft even. I mean, anything. If, if Facebook isn't safe, there's nothing safe. And I think that will change people's perspectives. There's so much margin debt. In the market now, there's so many hedge funds that are out in four, three or four times leverage in these tech stocks. And if their core holdings like this can blow up overnight, then people are going to have to cut their margin exposure. And that just creates selling pressure across across the whole sector. I think that's why you see the NASDAQ features down so much tonight. People are just worried, like, hey, if, if something that we perceive to be like as good as of a cash alternative as anything in the market can do this, then we need to pair our exposures elsewhere. And I think 
some of that comes back to we'll move more into the main topic that I had for tonight, which was how the Fed is changing things. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people that are trading now, particularly in the growth names, haven't really been haven't been in the market that long. I remember seeing a Twitter poll that was widely retweeted that only a third of traders uh, on the platform had been in the market in 2008, which was kind of the last big rate hike cycle. And so like for older traders, it's just kind of established wisdom that you never fight the Fed. When the Fed is hiking, you get out of the way. But for people that started trading after 2008, they've never really been through an interest rate uh, increase in cycle before. And so they might have underestimated how significant it is. Uh, the Fed did raise interest rates in 2017 and 18, but they they got very they achieved very little in terms of that rate hiking cycle, uh, and it didn't really have a big impact on markets. But like 2007, interest rates went from virtually nothing after 9/11 to 5 percent. In the late 90s, they hiked what 17 times, I believe, during that interest rate cycle. Obviously, in the 1970s, interest rates went to the moon. Um, so. Historically, interest rates have gone up a lot more, and I don't think people, I don't think a lot of the people trading tech stocks really understood uh, quite what was possible, and so now we're seeing a reassessment in real time. Uh, why is Powell doing what he's doing? Uh, simply put, the, the core inflation rate now is too high, uh, somewhere around 7% at the moment. Uh, the big question is how much of that is is transitory, the magic word everyone's been talking about, and how much of it is permanent. Uh, I think the big difference, what's been interesting since COVID, we've seen kind of more structural inflation. Prior to COVID, we had had the quantitative easing, QE, uh, that people had expected to cause inflation, uh, kind of in terms of the, it seemed like the Fed was creating more liquidity and that should have caused prices to increase kind of after 2009. People like gold was the top trade through 2011, gold and silver. Uh, people were expecting a big inflation wave. That never happened. I think the thing people didn't realize uh, was that QE changed, kind of describe it, QE changed the composition of money uh, or of balances in the financial system, but it didn't change the actual quantity of money outstanding, which is to say that money went from the Fed and went onto the balance sheets of the banks. Uh, but there wasn't actually more, like the Fed didn't literally print money as much as we enjoy the memes of, of the Federal Reserve guys with their printer running. Uh, Kiwi shifted money from the Fed to the banks, but then it sat on the bank vaults, uh, primarily that money was there. Uh, It was there so the banks uh, could recover their credit, kind of restore their status after 2008 when they'd lost so much money and bad mortgages and whatnot. Uh, But but that money never really entered the economy. If you look at the velocity of money, which is simply how often money is spent, uh, uh, like... Uh, the how how quickly money is spent versus how much of it exists. Velocity collapsed because the money that that the Fed had unleashed into the economy just didn't go anywhere. And so you got no inflation, and then COVID happens, and now we suddenly get inflation. So it's changed. Uh, you have shortages of actual goods. Obviously, the logistics issues, the problems with ports, now the problems with truckers. It's hard to get stuff around. Companies are all sorts of companies that you wouldn't expect to be exposed. There's just like, we can't get glass, so we can't manufacture like beverages. People can't get packing materials. There all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, people can't get cans, so like food production's impacted. You've got workers dropping out of the labor force. People just retired early during COVID, or they found remote work that they're enjoying more. They're taking up hobbies, whatnot. There was so much stimulus, a lot of people found found new alternative lifestyles and didn't go back to their old jobs. 
And also the government started running massive deficits, uh, fiscal deficits, uh, in terms of uh, sending everyone literal checks at one point and the large uh, relief programs for the economy. And unlike when the, when the Fed gives gives money to the banks, that doesn't necessarily create inflation because that's more of an accounting swap than, than something that has a real tangible effect on the economy. But when the government goes and borrows money and then immediately spends it, that doesn't uh, increase output in the economy. And so, and so you saw a huge surge in demand. And now, particularly because of all the money that was given to consumers, who had consumer spending up 15, 20% in 2021, which was by far the biggest one-year jump in history. And so we just overran uh, the supply in the economy. There's just physical shortages of stuff. And now the big argument in terms of what the Fed will do is uh, do the shortages go away in six months or does it take years to go away? And so by hiking interest rates, the the Fed should be able to slow down the economy uh, to some extent, uh, kind of rein in prices. And that's their goal anyway. And so that's why people are thinking the Fed will just not hike. Like, I think kind of that was uh, what we saw last week or two weeks ago when the market tanked. Uh, that was kind of pressuring the Fed into telling them, hey, like you guys are being too aggressive. Don't hike. Uh, but the Fed has... Uh, faces a difficult challenge now because they need uh, they need inflation to go down. And before, like uh, before, when they weren't hiking, people were telling them, "Hey, you need to hike back in like 2014, 2015, uh, whatnot, years ago." But inflation was at like two percent, and so they had no the Fed had no real incentive to hike. But now, when inflation's at seven percent, Biden is watching his chances of re-election plummet. It's, the calculus has totally changed. Uh, I think this brings us to an interesting question of how many times the Fed will hike. Right now, the market is pricing in four hikes this year and like seven hikes over the next two years. I think this is an interesting, uh, potentially interesting place to trade, particularly if you've ever traded bonds, uh, because there are markets to trade on where interest rates will be in the future, effectively how many times the Fed will, will hike. And I think there's a good chance the Fed will not hike uh, particularly seven times over the next two years. And that seems uh, fairly unlikely. Uh, and I like it as a trade. Like uh, You can buy either two-year bonds or euro-dollar futures to express that view. I like that as a trade because it kind of serves as a natural hedge to a, to a stock portfolio because what would cause... Uh, what would cause the value of short-term bonds to go up, meaning fewer rate hikes? Uh, when bond prices go up, yields go down, and vice versa. So what would cause the value of short-term bonds to go up? That would be the economy underperforming and or the stock market declining. And so by uh, owning bonds, you've got a trade that is kind of going to act as a as a counterweight to your long stocks. If your stocks go up, you might lose a little bit of money on your bonds. But if stocks go down, if the economy tanks, you'll make a lot of money on your bonds because we'll go from seven rate hikes to maybe two or three rate hikes. And the 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 amount of torque you get on bonds with the interest rate moves is amazing. And so I, I think that's a very interesting uh, portfolio hedge at this time. And it kind of goes along with, you've probably heard of the 60-40 portfolio, which is kind of the common put 60% of your money in equities and 40% of your money in bonds, and then they kind of naturally hedge each other. And that's built on the same idea. However, the big difference there is that the 40 is typically put in a longer duration bond fund, like maybe 20-year bonds, 30-year bonds, uh, because those pay much higher interest historically than short-term bonds. Um, 
And I think that obviously that was one of the greatest trades of the past 30 years because uh, interest rates were like 10% in the 1980s and they dropped to 1% on the long-term bonds uh, in during COVID. And so over the last, what, 30 years, he made a ton of money on stocks. Like the S&P went from 2000 to... No, 2000, what am I talking about? The NASDAQ went from under 1,000 to like 14,000, and then interest rates uh, went way down. So the 60-40 portfolio, just long stocks, long bonds, was one of the greatest trades of the past generation. Uh, but I'm, it's, it's more worrisome now just because your 30-year bonds are starting at such a low interest rate now. They're like Realistically, how much farther can they go below zero? Uh, which greatly limits your upside. And yes, I know in Germany and Switzerland and whatnot, interest rates went below zero, but uh, I would not be comfortable betting on that as a long-term proposition. So uh, I would be uncomfortable owning long-term bonds here, particularly since we don't know how hot inflation will run in the short term. However, I like short-term bonds here. I think they're very interesting as a way of uh, hedging the Fed exposure because as we saw last week, two weeks ago, the Fed... It faces this really difficult challenge because it needs to control inflation over the longer term. But it, uh, Powell doesn't want to hike when he sees the stock market dropping 10 or 20 percent. Uh, he blundered, arguably, in 2018 in December when the S&P was already down 15 percent. And then he hiked once again and said that we were a long way from normal. Uh, and markets just completely lost it. And then like the next week, he had to apologize and say like he misspoke and said there wouldn't be any more rate hikes. And essentially just bent his knee to the market. Uh, I think he was uh, kind of he was a new Fed chair at that time, and I think he realized that he'd he'd really overstepped his hand there. And so now he's going to be more careful in terms of he wants to raise interest rates and control inflation. And he seems to be very credible on that front. Uh, however, I think he's going to be very careful about uh, continuing to hike rates if the market is already tanking. Uh, over the past thirty years, there have only been I don't have the Where's the exact data? Only one-eighth of rate hikes have occurred with the S&P down more than 6% from all-time highs. And so, yeah, it's exceedingly uncommon for the Fed to hike interest rates once the market's in a steep correction. And so I think probably we'll see every time the market kind of recovers back towards the highs, the Fed will hike again. And then as it drops, uh, the Fed will kind of back off. And obviously, when stocks go down, when the economy slows down, that helps with controlling inflation as well. So I think the Fed will just kind of try to walk the tightrope, and uh, they don't really want stocks going straight up anymore because they need to control inflation. But I don't think they want to hike us straight into a big bear market either, uh, which some, I don't know, if you read like Zero Hedge in places, they seem to think the Fed's just going to crash the market, uh, which I, I really don't think Powell wants that either. So... My plan, my, my game plan at this point is I think we get something like two to four rate hikes. I think they'll be a little bit spaced out. And I think the Fed will very carefully try to thread the needle in terms of uh, getting rates up, but without tanking the market directly on uh, straight on. And so I think that's that's the playbook. I find something like short-term bonds interesting uh, because I think people are pricing in too many rate hikes too fast here. Uh, I don't see how the we could take seven or eight rate hikes over the next two years and not end up straight in a recession uh, with the amount of leverage and debt in the system. I think it needs to be very gradual for for people to accommodate that. So people that are expecting just a replay of 2003 to seven, where interest rates went up uh, what, like 15 times in a four-year period, 
uh, I don't think we're getting that, especially since uh, after they did that, you got like the biggest housing bust in, in history. So probably that's not the playbook they want to run this time. So, yeah, that's where I see the Fed going, although obviously that's uh, very data dependent. Uh, if, if inflation comes in faster than expected, I think the Fed will totally try to back off rate hikes, maybe just one in March and be done. But uh, we'll see. I would not bet on seven, though. I think that's too high. As far as individual sectors, uh, yeah, I think tech is in trouble with any sort of this paradigm shift is very bad for tech. Uh, look where valuations were for tech stocks in the early 2010s. Uh, most of the big names were trading between like 10 and 15 times earnings. You could buy Microsoft at like 12 times at that point. And now Microsoft's gone up over 30 times earnings, even though interest rates are right around where they were then. And so now everyone's saying we, we should own tech, or at least until last year, people are saying we should own tech because they're stable cash flow names that are that are worth owning in a low interest rate world, but you could have made the exact same argument for all the tech companies in 2012, and yet people were paying really pathetic PE multiples for them then. So I'm unconvinced that the the value of a stock like Microsoft stays at 30 times earnings as interest rates go back up. Uh, I'd be very skeptical of that. Like I pointed out, we've got all these companies like Cisco, Oracle, HP, Intel, and so on. They're still trading at very low PE multiples today. And so people just want stable cash flows from large, high-quality tech companies. Uh, I think that, that those those exist, and so I'm not sure you can justify Microsoft at today's valuation, or especially Amazon at its. Uh, yeah, and I think Facebook at today was a big warning and big wake-up call for people that uh, valuations might still be too high in tech. Uh, I know it seems simplistic, just interest rates up, so tech stocks go down. But so many people are using the inverse. Interest rates are going down, so we buy tech stocks. And so uh, don't over, don't underestimate how much uh, things can reverse just from from that sentiment swing. And it, I mean, it seems kind of silly how simple it is, and yet it seems to be playing out. Uh, one that I think is interesting that I've gotten a lot of pushback on is an energy. It seems, at first glance, it might seem silly to own energy during a rising interest rate uh, environment. Like Energy is very cyclical and tied to the health of the economy. So if the Fed's trying to slow down the economy, why would you want to own energy? Which is a totally reasonable response. However, I would... Uh, I'd like to bring up an idea from uh, macro trader uh, Alex Gurevich. Apologies if I mispronounce his last name. He wrote an interesting book, The Next Perfect Trade, a few years ago, uh, saying that you, when finding a good macro trade, you're looking for two elements, uh, necessity and dominance. Necessity being you need something that uh, is going to participate in whatever the macro move is that you're trying to to take part in. So basically stick to assets that will uh, that are liquid and will participate in whatever you're looking at. And then dominance, meaning it's the best way to play a trade because uh, if it goes as you expect, uh, you'll do well. And if it doesn't go as you expect, that you're naturally protected from the downside. He likes to use bonds as the example of that uh, because like if the economy kept, uh, what's the word, muddling along, uh, as it had been through the 2010s, then the price of bonds would stay low, so owning bonds would work well. And then uh, if the economy actually sped up, then the Fed would have to raise rates quickly, and that would cause the economy to stall out, uh, which would make the bonds go back up. And so <laughs> he said that owning bonds was 
was one of the safest ways, ironically, to to be long, which in turn was true. Uh, he made a fortune during COVID when bonds hit new all-time highs, which had not been a popular view. Uh, but anyway, I like his framework as it applies to energy now uh, because we can't get new supply of energy, at least not from Western countries with all of the restrictions uh, from governments and ESG investors in terms of not giving money to the sector. Uh, look at the number of drilling rigs, for example, and even with oil uh, creeping up at $90 now, we still have fewer rigs than we had uh, when the price was much lower in 2016-17. Uh, so if you're not getting new supply, uh, if the economy heats up, like if inflation keeps going hot, then oil is going to skyrocket. I mean, uh, oil is kind of the fulcrum, the marginal utility that makes everything in the economy go. So if we're still in an environment of shortages and logistics problems and uh, just a lack of supply, uh, oil is like the number one asset you want to own. And then if the economy sputters out, like why does the economy sputter out? It's because demand has come come up short. Why did demand fall? It's because the economy uh, became weak or the Fed hiked too aggressively or something happened to cause demand to drop. Uh, and what's really going to get hit if the economy rolls over? It's going to be the the high valuation stuff, like the bubble stocks and the economy, the, the stuff that was up on narrative and stories rather than than having true earnings. Like if you buy an energy stock at 20 times free, uh, 20% free cash flow yields and the economy slows down a little bit, that's not the end of the world. But if you own a stock at 50 times earnings and the economy goes into recession, you're in real trouble. And so like energy seems like the perfect sort of asset to own in this environment because if the Fed lets things run hot, then energy will be one of the biggest winners. And if the Fed keeps going after the economy, as we've seen like in December and January, then tech collapsed and yet energy did fine. Like oil just made new highs last week. Energy stocks have still been going up. And so, yeah, I've seen this as a dominant trade since I recommended it last summer. I think that's still the case. Uh, if you look in the 1970s, obviously during that huge inflationary period, energy was the very best asset in the world. Also in between 2005 and 2007, when the Fed hiked interest rates aggressively, energy was the second best performing sector in that market environment as well. And so I think people are overly worried about the cyclicality nature of energy, which is true, uh, but they're missing out on the fact that we can't create new demand, uh, new supply, excuse me, uh, due to all the government uh, interference in the sector. And so that's kind of created a very interesting uh, feature. Uh, I also like staples in the current, consumer staples, food, alcohol, tobacco, et cetera, in the current environment. Uh, you have very little fixed costs in terms of running your business, uh, so you don't really have to put more capital into your business, even as, as prices increase. Something like Hershey, I forget the exact number, but it's like they have $3 billion of, of factories and equipment and all, which is very little for a company that throws off as much profits as they do. And so it's like if the price of everything doubles in the economy, they might have to put another $3 billion into work to to make their business operate. But say if you're an airline... And then you have to buy another $20 billion of planes or whatever, and that's uh, going to wipe you out. So, yeah, I think staples are underappreciated. They can raise prices immediately. Every time you go to the grocery store, the prices have gone up. The staples companies are doing fine. Uh, REITs, people love REITs during rising uh, inflation periods, rising rate periods. Uh, just beware of their funding costs. A lot of them have a ton of debt. And so depending on when their debt comes due, they may have to refinance at much higher interest rates, depending on their credit and how the economy is looking. Uh, recently, that hasn't been a problem because uh, credit has been easily available. 
but yeah, it's just something to keep an eye on. Generally, I think REITs should do well in a rising interest rate environment, but know what you own. Uh, I particularly like something like a public storage, ticker PSA, the largest storage company in the U.S., uh, because it has funded itself almost all with preferred stocks rather than bonds. Preferred stock uh, means that uh, they issue them to the public. They trade like on the New York Stock Exchange rather than being debt. And they pay typically public storage pays 4% a year on their preferred stocks. And they're never callable, meaning that public storage never has to repay the principal on, on those preferred stocks. It can just keep paying the 4% uh, dividend. Uh, annually indefinitely and so if interest rates i know it's hard to imagine now but if interest rates go to seven or eight percent or something then public storage has this four percent debt that it never has to repay that's a tremendous competitive advantage whereas most of the other self-storage companies are funded by bonds and so if interest rates go to seven percent then they might have to refinance at 10 or 11 percent say to get new debt and so public storage, in my view, is this tremendous asset because they own, they're one of the largest landlords in the U.S. They own so much good urban land, like in city centers. So you've got the land that's going to appreciate a lot if uh, if inflation really gets out of control. And yet on the debt side of things, their their cost of capital is like the lowest in the industry. So I think uh, if you're looking for individual uh if you're looking at REITs, like look for individual optionality like that, where you might get some uh, some unexpected upside. Yeah. So that's. Uh... Oh yeah, and I was just gonna say finally on emerging markets, I think those are interesting as well because they haven't had most of them haven't had zero percent interest rates for the past ten years. A lot of them have still had normally functioning bond markets, and so to them, like. If you're in Mexico, say, and the interest rate goes up from 4 to 4% to 5%, that's not a big deal for your companies. Whereas if you're in the U.S. and your interest rate's been 0% for the past 10 years, uh, you might not know how to react when things go to 2 or 3%. This is kind of a paradigm shift in the U.S. and Europe and Japan, these countries that have had zero interest rates forever. Uh, whereas if you're in an emerging market, you're used to paying interest on your debt. You're used to having to be cautious with your capital. And so I think these economies will handle a rising interest rate and inflation environment much more normally than the U.S. will, where kind of everyone under 40 doesn't know how to deal with inflation in the U.S. No, more like under 50. Uh, yeah. And so I think you could see a lot of things uh, go haywire if, if an inflation, inflationary environment lasts too long in the U.S., simply because people aren't used to it or know how to deal with it. Whereas, yeah, if you're a business operator in, I don't know, Russia or Turkey or Colombia or Mexico, you've dealt with inflation all your life. This is not something new for you. And then also just like stuff like commodities are going up. So you're getting a lot more income on a lot of your, your export goods. Whereas like the U.S., it's largest exports now are the technological services, stuff like Facebook and Google and Apple uh, that are not necessarily winners from inflation. Uh, so I think, I think emerging markets, this could be an environment that's uh, surprisingly good for them. The last time emerging markets did very well was in 2003 to 2008 during the last big Fed rate hike cycle, which also corresponded with energy booming. Uh, so yeah, if we're heading into a period of structurally higher inflation for a few years, it's kind of uh, workers have figured out they can demand higher wages and we have uh, shortages of stuff. Uh, I think uh, you could be having a paradigm shift now where tech underperforms and a lot of stuff people haven't really thought about for a while, like your REITs and your energy and stuff, uh, works out well.
So yeah, that's my prepared talk for tonight, and then I'm happy to open the line, uh, hear from you guys either on on what I just said about inflation and interest rates or on tech earnings. All right, Gary, you are up. Gary, oh, there you go. Hi. Hi. Thanks, Ian. Yep. Um, I have a couple questions. One is I'm curious your view on housing and real estate. In the U.S. specifically? The U.S., yes. Um, overall with interest rates, but uh, – in the U.S. specifically, yes. All right. Yeah, I think uh, I'm more bullish on housing than a lot of people. Uh, um, obviously, 2021 was a very good year for the housing market, and I wouldn't expect another year quite that strong. But I see a lot of analysts predicting outright declines uh, in housing earnings or like in bank earnings in terms of their mortgage underwriting for 2022, and I think that might be a bit too negative. Uh, certainly, interest rates going up uh, is a drag on the sector, no doubt. However, uh, what was it? Mid 2021 was the last data I saw. The American consumer was in the best shape in terms of its income compared to its monthly debt service since the 1960s. Uh, don't underestimate how much people's rising incomes help in terms of housing affordability. This is the first time, really, since. I can't even remember uh, when uh, people's wages are really going up uh, at a significant speed. Not just wages for like bankers and lawyers and all, but like wages for just normal like people that work at restaurants or truckers or stuff like that. Like people are seeing real 10, 15, 20% uh, wage increases. And that drives a lot of uh, when people get a raise, they start thinking, oh, now I can buy a new car. Now I can get the down payment on my house. Yeah, I think. I think that's creating a lot, uh, a good deal of pent-up demand. Uh, millennials still need to buy houses. Uh, so many people in my generation uh, are still living in apartments or living with their parents. Uh, I think there's a big demographic deficit there in terms of people didn't feel comfortable buying houses in the 2010s because uh, their incomes were stagnant. Uh, the economy just seemed kind of lackluster. Uh, that's a, I, I can see I was very bullish on housing until about three months ago, and I'm Seeing some red flags, in particular, consumer confidence has kind of rolled over, which maybe that will pass if we can get inflation under control. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, definitely not a good sign. Consumers need to to want to buy houses to make things happen. Uh, yeah, seeing some banks might might tighten lending restrictions a little bit, so that's not helpful either. Uh, yeah, overall, I'm still reasonably up, upbeat on housing. Okay. Uh, thanks. And one other question I have for you is uh, whether you think it would be wise or appropriate to be hedged or short tech right now. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there's a reasonable case for that. It would all depend in terms of what kind of hedge specifically. But yeah, like uh, just. I don't know, some kind of vanilla, like short of like the NASDAQ or like QQQ or uh, yeah, something like that. It's small. I wouldn't want to bet like outright on stocks to go down, if you know what I mean. Uh, but like if my portfolio is 100% invested in stocks, 
uh, and I don't have any cash, then maybe I say, hey, I'm going to put a 20% position uh, shorting the NASDAQ futures or shorting the S&P, uh, SPY, QQQ, whatever. Um, just because I like what I own, I don't want to create tax liability on the things I own, for example, uh, but I want to lower my overall beta, lower my overall exposure to the market. Yeah, I think, I think tech... I mean, QQQ, the NASDAQ 100, has not had a down year since 2008. It's been up 13 years in a row, which is just utterly crazy in terms of a streak. Uh, people just view these as, as as good as cash in many cases. Like, hedge funds own the FANG stocks just as kind of like, oh, we had new money come in and we don't know what to do with it yet, so we're just going to put it in Google for safekeeping. It's like, oh, well, what happens if Facebook suddenly goes down 22% a day? Maybe, maybe these aren't as good as cash alternatives. Uh, and so... Yeah, I would I would be comfortable using Nasdaq or SPY as a as a hedge, but I would not want to outright uh, don't go like uh, John Hussman and start betting that the stock market's gonna like outright decline. I'd be uncomfortable doing that. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, you know, there's been a lot of comparisons to 2003, or excuse me, 2000. Uh, in 2001 uh-huh. and there's there's so many comparisons i feel kind of uh, uncomfortable that it's gonna do the same thing but certainly in that environment being short tech was a uh, a slam dunk absolutely yeah and i do think i think the 2000 comparison is fairly reasonable i think i may have talked about this on the show previously but just to summarize very quickly the like in March of 2000, the dot-com stocks, just like the stuff that had no real business, like your pets.com type stuff, that stuff all started to go down. And then like the high-quality stuff, your Microsoft, Oracle, Yahoo, Cisco, uh, Lucent, that stuff didn't go down until early 2001. And so I think that's an interesting parallel to where we might be today in terms of like ARC and SPACs and everything kind of topped out in February or March of last year. And now we're starting to see the big tech companies here, your PayPal's and Facebook's and Shopify's. Those are starting to struggle, like kind of a year after the the really dodgy kind of lower quality stuff went down. Uh, but if you look like the S and P, well, no, the S and P still got hit. Like a lot of the the value name stuff, like Berkshire and uh, energy and banks and insurance and stuff, did pretty well between 2000 and 2003. Like aside from 9/11, like that kind of hit everybody but aside from that the value the 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 more blue chip kind of stocks uh, did fairly well and so at least my my general playbook yeah history never repeats exactly but i think we're kind of in a rhyme with 2000 and so my focus is on finding high quality stocks that are far away from tech so just in industries that are kind of off the radar like staples and energy and financials uh, and then and then i i watch tech and yeah, and I'm fine with shorting a little bit of tech as a hedge, like just in case the overall market tanks. Uh, it's nice to have a hedge. Uh, but yeah, my focus is just on places where I see reasonable valuations in other sectors. Okay, thank you. Yep. Anyone else? All right, have to, good to hear from you. Let's get you on here. Hello. Hi. Hello. Um, Good evening. Hi, Yan. Yeah. I have a question on your um, on an Argentina um, oil company, energy company that you mentioned 
that you recently bought. Um, is that YPF? I forgot this ticker. Um, yes, I, YPF. Yeah. Uh, my question being, um, I quickly looked into that company. It seems to be pivoting from traditional energy into shale energy. So, do you mind giving more of a um, description of why you uh, went into that particular energy play recently? Okay, so. Uh, uh, yes, they, it has conventional oil, it has shale, there's a large shale field in Argentina that they're trying to develop, and then it's also involved in offshore oil, so I'd say it's involved across various uh, pieces of the the oil ecosystem, uh, and in that case, I, mean, I think there's a lot of uh, cheap oil companies in emerging markets, but what really interests me with Argentina right now uh, is that you You just had the midterm elections that brought a much more conservative government to power. It seems likely that conservatives will win the next presidency as well in 2023. Uh, given the changes that we've seen, particularly the government is opening up mining, to, they're giving out new mining licenses and have been reducing taxes in the mining industry. You're seeing a much more favorable regulatory uh, overview for Argentine commodity producers. And so I think something like... I don't have a strong view on YPF in terms of its own assets or outlook, but I think owning the biggest uh, oil company in a rapidly improving geography for, I think I'm quite bullish on Argentina as a country, and I'm also bullish on energy, and so those things line up nicely. And the stock hasn't really moved. Like June, it was 5.50, and now it's uh, 4.30, even though kind of energy in general has already gone up a lot. And so I think there's room for things to catch up as people rediscover the the Argentine market. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, your um, your choice of making that, that investment is purely from a country perspective, not from the internal dynamics. But when I look, when I found that it was a pivot into a shale place, um, I was originally. Uh, gonna uh, also buy some of it and then I saw it was a shell that gave me a bit of a pause because that seems to be um, linked to a certain break even maybe I don't know um, oil prices being above a certain level um, so with the US shell um, poor <laughs> poor uh, aftertaste uh, it gave me some pause but if your perspective is from the um, differential in different country valuation metri- mechanics. Maybe there is enough of a margin of safety already. Um, but I have a, a related and, question. Uh, yes, you're correct on, on the shale. Although I'd say in terms of a lot of why shale was so bad was that you had uh, low quality operators in the U.S. that were using a lot of debt, uh, very promotional management teams. Uh, that were telling people that they could get oil at very low prices, and then it turned out it was costing them maybe $70 a barrel when they'd gone to investors and said, oh, it will cost us $40 a barrel, uh, and they raised a lot of debt. Uh, yeah, the U.S. industry was very badly mismanaged, but the shale producers that know what they're doing, like companies like Chevron aren't losing money at it. It hasn't been, it's certainly not been their best investment in terms of their whole portfolio, but I I think shale is sustainable uh, with competent management, and certainly at $90 oil prices today, it works. But yes, you're right. Shale is certainly not the most attractive oil asset. Yeah. So uh, I have a related question on Argentina, because your other airport play, CAP, 
Um, yes. Um, and it, your thesis, um, I think, is hinged on um, uh, EV uh, versus EBITDA um, um, multiple at its pre-COVID um, um, EBITDA level. But when I was checking that that particular metric out, I had some complications. Uh, there were two part of it. The, um, a lot of um, well, I use Google. Oh, I'm sorry, I use Guru Focus. So uh, uh-huh. the 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 EBITDA, the twenty twenty uh, nineteen EBITDA, they on their website is very different from what the companies uh, what shows up in the company. Um, Materials. I think there is at least one reason because the company gives the adjusted EBITDA, so it's not the standard uh, formulation. And then, secondly, um, it's it. I guess it has to do with the inflation plus currency depreciation, um, because um, the Guru Focus would give me like an EBITDA of like less than 200 million USD, but the company filing or whatever the presentation would give a 2019 EBITDA of like close to uh, above 400 million USD. And the company's presentation would have a footnote that says they uh, exclude the impact of certain um, IRS accounting uh, article that will ask them to restate um, restate the impact of hyperinflation, something to that effect. I don't really understand it, but um, that gives me, that actually um, generates a big question mark in my mind. So with a hyperinflationary environment, um, how, um, if you want to use the 2018, 2019 pre-COVID EBITDA as the, um, as a forward-looking uh, state of affairs where things are uh, going back to normal, which they are, by um, if you look at the air traffic. But due to the wildly volatile inflation and uh, de- uh, depreciation on the currency side, what, what's the best gauge of a pre-COVID like EBITDA? Um, like, do you still feel? At least I don't feel as confident as using, say, the company cited 450-ish million as the pre-COVID EBITDA that we are returning to, given where the currency is. Uh Yeah, that's a great question. You you did a lot of due diligence to to double-check the math there, and I appreciate that. I think in this case, uh, yes, from... From my recollection, there was about 450 million of EBITDA in 2019. I think the difference that's happening is officially the Argentine peso is at one exchange rate, according to the government. Uh, like today, it's at 100, I believe, officially. However, on on the black market, like uh, in formal markets, uh, the real exchange rate is 200, so a 50% difference. Uh, but when companies officially file their reports, they normally use the government's exchange rate. Uh, for like legal and tax purposes, even though that's not the real uh, the rate that's being used when they do business. Uh, and in Cap's case in particular, for all of their passengers that arrive in Argentina for internationally, 
uh, cap receives, uh, as of last year, is $51 U.S. dollars per passenger that arrived to their airports. And that's guaranteed, and it's paid in dollars, not in pesos. And so, theoretically, the peso could be valued at whatever tomorrow, and CAP's uh, income and EBITDA would still be the same for all their uh, international passengers that arrive to Buenos Aires and other Argentine cities, uh, since it's dollar-guaranteed revenues. The only peso revenues they have are from domestic flights in Argentina, but Argentina is not a large uh, domestic market, and so the vast majority of their uh, Argentine revenues are, are in dollars. Uh, but then when they report them, like they report all their financials in local currency for tax purposes. And so uh, any website service that's just looking at their numbers would say, oh, the exchange rate is 100 pesos to a dollar. So therefore, your EBITDA is half of the real figure, uh, which you would calculate using like what they actually get, which is U.S. dollars, $51 per passenger and not the, the artificial peso exchange rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, I don't think we can get a, a perfect answer <laughs> to this. It's it's just a um, wild uh, such that um, we if I if I were to increase my investment, I'll probably um, use greater margin of safety. But uh, can I ask you one more question on Argentina? Because when sure. you uh, uh, wrote your most recent piece on Argentina, you seemed or maybe not the most recent, some sometime back in your Argentina piece. You said you avoided those agricultural companies like uh-huh. uh, Crisi, etc. Um, I, I want to see whether you still want to avoid them or do you think agriculture companies, those that own farmland um, that produce the grains and also maybe uh, are more integrated than that, um, also do some of the consumer packaging stuff, is, is would that be a good play in today's environment? Yeah, historically, the challenge with those has been that, like, unlike the airports, for example, uh, or unlike some of the consumer products companies uh, in Ar- in in urban areas in Argentina, the obviously the farm companies are in rural parts of the country that tend to be conservative, and so whenever they have a socialist government, the socialists tend to have policies that are bad for the agricultural industry. And in particular, they often have to export their goods at the official exchange rate, which means they're only getting 50% of international market prices for their cattle, for their soy, uh, for their corn, and so on. And so it's it's devastating for their profit margins when you have socialist governments in power there because the socialists, all of their voters are in Buenos Aires, and so they, they enact policies and in favor of big cities. I was there in 2015 and we went out to the countryside uh, because I have a friend that uh, he lives out there. Uh, You just had tons of land that had just been left uh, empty. Like people weren't even farming it because the exchange rate was so bad that year that they would have lost money trying to sell uh, goods overseas. Uh, That said, 2023, I think you'll get a conservative uh, president in Argentina. So they should have at least four good years in terms of uh, having a chance to earn normal market prices for their exports. You could see Cressid, uh, C-R-E-S-Y, in particular report very large profits for the next few years. Uh, so I think there might be an interesting uh, swing trade there, particularly like if the price of soy goes up more. Uh, it could be very interesting. Uh, that said, I like something like, like the airports more because you have the guaranteed dollar revenues uh, and the government's interests are 
typically more aligned with yours? Because like the whole country benefits if you have more tourists, whereas something like the agricultural sector is more provincial. So I would just see that as a riskier long-term buy and hold sort of thing because it's more subject to government interference. Uh, but I think the next few years could be very good for that uh, asset. Okay. Can you can you go back a bit when you say how, how does the socialist government ask them to take only half international like uh, whatever uh, exchange rate? What I'm what I uh, had in mind is the reason why I got somewhat interested in this idea is I read China is going to increase its um, agricultural purchases from or it, they have been increasingly purchasing more uh, agricultural stuff from Argentina and they are going to increase the oh they're, they're going to start some Belt and Road project also in Argentina to help them do the inland infrastructure that will I think help the transport port issue so um, when China buys from, say, this created company, they're going to pay regular, like, dollars at the prevailing market rate, right? How can the socialist government take up, like, artificially make it less favorable to those agricultural companies? Uh-huh. Yeah. Historically, uh, exporters for uh, commodity goods uh, for grains and often for mining, like for copper and gold and uh, those sorts of goods, have to sell their products to the Argentine government, uh, which will pay them, the government will pay them what they say is the market rate, but it's at the artificial exchange rate. So let's say uh, soybeans cost $5 uh, per bushel, right, in the international market. So a farmer sells uh $5 of soybeans to the Argentine government, but then the Argentine government only gives them 100 pesos per oh. per dollar because that's the official exchange rate. Uh, whereas the Argentine government receives 200 from China when China buys the soybeans uh, because there's this dual exchange rate system. So anyone that's forced to sell their goods or their labor for pesos in Argentina uh, gets a very bad deal. Whereas companies that can sell at uh, the U.S. dollar rate do very well. And so that's why oh, something okay. like the airports are compelling in that their revenues are guaranteed in dollars and not in pesos. Okay, okay, good. Thank you very much. All set. All right, Greg, uh, you are up. Greg. <clears throat> Got it. Oh, hey, I never, remember. I never remember with the buttons to press. Okay. No problem. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, let's go back to your UM, um, UWMC article from November. Uh-huh. Okay. So if uh, uh, what I'm looking at is if their payout ratio is low, then the risk of their stock going down due to fear of a dividend cut is non-existent. The, the stock price still might go down, but not through that path. And if that if that is true, if that's the case, then I'm, I'm thinking there's a good chance – if it does go down, the stock price, it'll settle at a uh, yield equivalent of what BTI is settled in, let's say 8, 8.5%. If it's not BTI, it's not that quality, maybe 9, 9.5%. So at today's price, $4, I don't know, 80 cents, whatever it is, uh, it looks like uh, selling puts is, is good. $5 puts for $1.50 
you know, worst case scenario, you, uh, you, you get a sign for $3.50 and you get an 11% yield. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I was, uh, before the market was melting down, when the stock was at $6, I was looking at selling puts and it was on my list of things to do. Uh, but then I kind of got lost amid uh, everything else that's happened over the last month. But yeah, you're right, it's come down even more. Uh, for people that aren't familiar, UWMC is the ticker we're talking about here. UWM is the company. It's a mortgage underwriter. Uh, it's traded down a long way. It was a SPAC, uh, so it came out at $10, and it's lost more than half its value over the past six months. Uh, people are afraid that with rising interest rates that there will be fewer mortgages, in particular refinancing transactions. Uh, the company is incredibly profitable right now. Uh, it's trading at five times current earnings, uh, but people are obviously worried that earnings are going to decline if and when mortgage volumes decline. Uh, but analysts actually see analysts see the earnings dipping by about 10% this year and then going back up in 2023. So obviously if the stock can stabilize here at uh, earning, like it's earning a dollar a share this year. And so a dollar a share in a $5 stock is pretty incredible. Uh, but people obviously like are thinking we're going to get like the next big short or whatever, like the housing market disintegrates and this company gets run over. That seems to be what the bears are thinking and just business back and whatever. People don't like it. Uh, but yeah, I think earnings will be fairly stable. Like I said, I'm reasonably optimistic on the housing market. Uh, and really, I mean, how low do we think this thing's going to go when it's earning a dollar a share? Like you said, if you get assigned at 350 on puts, uh, it's less than four times earnings. Uh, yeah, the only thing, the only cost, just because they're paying a high dividend yield, that slightly hurts you in terms of selling puts. Because when they pay out their dividend payments, the stock price normally will go down a little bit, just like, whenever they pay out. And it's usually not a big deal if a stock's only yielding like 2 or 3%. When it, right now it's yielding 8%. So like every time every time they have their quarterly dividend payment, the stock's going to drop uh, 2%, 10 cents. Uh, it's not a big deal. It's just something to keep in mind that when you have that high yield, uh, you're kind of fighting that as a put seller as well. But yeah, I think you're right. Uh, it seems like a very attractive situation. The moment the Fed says, hey, we're going to slow down on the rate hikes, I think you see housing stocks come roaring back, and this thing could move back to six, seven bucks in a few weeks. Uh, you get twelve percent of the the stock is sold short right now, which is uh, pretty high, particularly for a company that's this profitable. So I would be I would be very nervous to be short that stock right here. So yeah, I think you're onto an interesting idea there. Thanks. All right, anyone else? All right, Gary, you're up. Okay, thanks again. I'm just wondering if you could give us an update on your feeling on oil here and if anything has either strengthened or diminished your view on oil continuing to go up. Yeah, uh, I'd say in the short term, I'm, I'm a little more cautious. Just, I mean, we've almost hit 90 now. It seems like every week I see new people calling for $100 a barrel. There was another bank that was calling for that today. I mean, really, it's not that aggressive of a call anymore. It's only 10% up. Uh, but it seems like uh, there's a lot of people that have, have joined the, the oil bandwagon. So I'm always cautious. I mean, it would not surprise me at all if you got a 10 or 15% drop uh, just because a lot of people have really gotten in recently wouldn't be surprising profit taking whatever uh like you may have seen i i took some profits on uh the cnq options positions i still am in the trade but took some money off the table and you've got calls that have tripled it makes sense to 
to to dial it back a little bit. But yeah, long term, I think the story's still good. I like oil through 2024. Let's call it. I think we get to at least the low triple digits, so like 110, 120, uh, which is still a decent upside from here, and potentially more depending on just kind of how things play out. Like uh, as I said, it's it's such an interesting trade in that like if inflation runs hot, like if the government can't get things under control, inflation's going to be where it goes. And oil hit 147 in 2011, so obviously prices overall have gone up a lot since then. And now we're let, not letting new pe- people drill for new oil. In so many parts of the world, you can't build new pipelines anywhere. Like the situation, the industry structurally faces so many more challenges now than it did then, and yet uh, the price is still much lower on inflation-adjusted terms than it previously reached. So I think it's a great inflation hedge, uh, and I don't think you get hit too badly if if the economy rolls over, just because on the energy stocks anyway, they're so cheap that I mean, like Suncor or CNQ can just buy back five or ten percent of their stock every year so that provides a lot of support for the stock price but yeah i wouldn't buy more today i mean i mean i wouldn't buy more today just because the prices are up so much over the past month or two but uh yeah 10 or 20 percent pullback definitely uh feel free to add would be my would be my take okay yeah you answered my question perfect all right i've got time for one more if anyone wants to be all right last Last question for the night. Oops. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Uh, I want to. uh, I want to go back to your remark earlier about the forty sixty forty bond equity portfolio that one Mm -hmm. will balance the other out. I recall there were very there were a few times when the bond market and the equity market they'll sync simultaneously. It, Uh It would be one of those really bad in the market so what would you do uh, in those situations yeah i think there's definitely a risk of that particularly in terms of the longer term bonds uh like like as i said now bond prices are so high yields are so low uh that i I see the 20 30 year bonds is quite risky like if you buy a bond that's only yielding two percent when you buy it you can really only the upside is limited because interest rates can really only go to zero, uh, but your downside is fairly steep. If interest rates go back to four, five, six percent, you would lose a lot of value on the face value of your bond. So yeah, I don't think sixty forty portfolio is as safe as it used to be. Uh, as it is now, I own very little fixed equity, uh, fixed income. I'm looking into buying short term bonds, but we're talking like one or two year bonds, just because I don't think the Fed can hike as many times as people are forecasting now. But I would be cautious about holding long term bonds. Uh, if stocks and bonds do go down together, I think I think that would create a I think you'd see a very large uh, and fast market sell-off because so many pension funds uh, there's so much institutional money that has been structured around the 60/40 portfolio now because it's worked uh, pretty continuously since 1985. So like uh, there's a lot of people that have just they keep allocating to it because it's like a momentum strategy. It's worked for so long. But if that really starts to not work, uh, yeah, I think it would cause a pretty steep uh, steep sell-off. Hopefully, I've tried to position my portfolio I'm, so I'm not in the consensus trades. Like, I don't just own the FANG stocks. I don't own the same stuff that the hedge funds and institutions own generally. And so I think that gives you some protection. Just uh, Your portfolio definitely as well. You own so much stuff in Asia and places that are not part of uh, the kind of basket that, that would be most owned. 
So I think uh, in terms of portfolio construction, what you've done and what I've done uh, should protect us to a significant degree. But yeah, if there's a liquidity event and people are selling everything, stocks and bonds, uh, uh, real estate and crypto, if, if it all goes down at the same time, it's definitely going to be, uh, we're going to lose some money short term regardless of what we own. But that's a chance to readjust our portfolios and buy other bargains as they come up. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I want to thank you all for listening. It was a great group tonight and uh, definitely interesting markets. I'm sure we'll have plenty more exciting stuff to talk about next week, given the startings uh, season we're having. So, yeah, have a great night. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk again soon.